Hello, welcome to the Sentencing Council podcast, Sentencing Explained. My name is Peter McClellan, and I am the chair of the council. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. We are joined today by Magistrate Mark Douglas, who is going to talk to us about the work that he does in the local court. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for the uh, opportunity. Mark, um, your story, your personal story, is one of which I'm sure will be of real interest to the listeners to this podcast. We, we should start off by identifying the fact that you are an Aboriginal person. Yes. And you were brought up in what part of Sydney? Uh, Western suburbs, Fibro Frontier, as I often now refer to it as, uh, East Hills. Um, live in a Fibro house out there. Right, with your family? Yeah, uh, mum, dad, brother, sister. Right, and how did you fare as a kid? Um, it, it was a difficult childhood, and you don't recognise that when you're living it, of course, but a very... Uh, difficult uh, childhood trauma. You prepared to tell us in what way it was difficult? Yeah, I suspect mum lived with mental illness, mental condition, and dad had his own uh, issues that he was living with. He grew up in a boys' home in England and was brought to Australia by himself, aged nine or ten, without parents. Um, mum uh, Grew up in a household that there was significant violence, domestic violence, alcohol. So all of those traumas had an impact on their ability to cope with their their life choices at that particular time, having a family. And uh, I saw a lot of domestic violence. There was a lot of arguments, turbulence. I was stabbed twice before I was 17. So I think I first saw cannabis, I was about 12. Um, there was heroin, I 14 when I first saw heroin. Um, it, was, it was difficult. My sister was sexually assaulted for a couple of years. Uh, I was sexually assaulted by an older boy um, and life was difficult. I was always waiting for, for mum to sort of take her own life. It was, yeah, it was really really difficult. And no doubt it had an impact upon the way you uh, moved through your schooling years. Yes, yeah, um, it did. Um, I was uh, probably, uh, from a teacher's perspective, uh, probably a difficult student, I'll say that. Uh, I was all right at playing footy, uh, rugby union, rugby league. Union better than league, but um, yeah, I failed the HSC 152 out of 500, I think, Peter. So That's not a high score. Uh, no, not in anyone's books. I think I missed about 49 days of um, year 12, uh, and it's only a short year. So and that um, mark wouldn't have got you into law school? No, definitely not. So, definitely what, not. so what did you do? Um, I took on various jobs. I was already laying bricks when I was at school, but I, I, I stayed there to play footy, really, and just um, sort of enjoy school holidays. I took an apprenticeship 
load bricks. I took a job on the roads. I drove trucks. Stop go person for a while, and then eventually, I was looking at maybe becoming a builder and or, or doing something more because I was always. At what age are we talking now? Uh, twenty. Three twenty-four. So by then you'd done all the bits and pieces jobs, but you were looking to create a career for yourself. Yeah, I was. Mm. Um, and then someone said, "Well, look, you you could go to uni," and I laughed and said, "No, I, no, no, that won't be happening." Because uh, I was an atrocious speller and still have problems. Um, anyway, about twenty-eight, twenty-nine, two children, mortgage, half renovated house. Um, I was told I was going to lose my job, so I took a redundancy, and uh, I went to uni. So you were able to finance your way to the university? Well, I, I worked two jobs, and I took a... It was like a gateway course for mature age students, and they gave me a HSC mark, eventually, to, to get into the law faculty. And I got a reasonable mark, so... So you must have worked pretty hard then to achieve all that at that stage yeah looking back I, I, I think I did work pretty hard yeah. yeah and which university did you end up uh, in University of Wollongong Wollongong right did you do the bridging course with them too yes I did so you went straight from the bridging course into the law faculty yes full time memory full time uh, yeah full time in fact I finished the arts law degree in I think four years I was trying for three and a half because I needed money uh, I tried for three and a half, but I think I finished it in four. They wouldn't let me do any more credit points. I was at, at the maximum all the time. So. And were you working at a job at the same time? Yeah, I was uh, laying bricks on the side and working in the law library and working in the library. Uh, you must have been busy. Yeah, looking back on it, yeah. Yeah, but you don't realise it when you're, you're doing it, Peter. You, you just sort of do it. It's quite a journey, though, from... No, failing the HSC to getting a degree in arts and law at the university. Yes, it is. I, I think the bigger part of the journey is putting discipline in myself and putting boundaries in place because when I grew up there, there wasn't many boundaries. Nothing was off limits. Mm. And that's um, the difficult part. Yeah. Um, and then when you finished your law degree, what, what did you do with it? Um, I went straight into practice. I worked with a very small boutique um, personal injury firm back in the days when personal injury was quite lucrative. I, I actually, lucky with with others, but I topped torts as a there was a couple of us, and I think I topped commercial and consumer contracts, and I think I did that shared that with someone else. Um, and in the arts department, I know I would have got. Over a dozen HDs, I'd imagine, um, without without counting them. Sounds like a spectacular record. Uh, yeah, look, the law the law faculty. I, I I wasn't that interested in the law subjects, but the art subjects were really really quite good. Um, but I went into a personal injury firm, and I didn't like it, even though didn't I didn't like that type of work. Didn't like that type of work. I was. Um, uh, I ended up. Uh, local court crime uh, ended up working for an ALS, which which I enjoyed. An Aboriginal Legal Service that 
became difficult seeing too many circumstances like I grew up with. It was a real headwind that that had an impact on me, so I, I moved. I started my own practice. I moved away from So how long after services. you left law school did you start your own practice? Uh, not that long. When I look back, I go, oh, gosh, um, three years. Right. And what did your practice in, involve? Was it crime? crime? It was a very, very busy crime practice. Uh, I know for a few years we did more legal aid work than any other firm in the state. Um, so, yeah, it was busy. All in the Wollongong? Yeah. Um, now at Wollongong, I did... Um, there was a, I was involved with a fair few murders, manslaughters, some in Sydney. So, yeah, I used to... Did you appear around. yourself as counsel or did you brief? No, 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 I, I would brief counsel. I did my own district court sentences and appeals. I used to really like district court because you were afforded time to be persuasive, in my view. Uh, it's much harder in the local court. I'm sure that's right. Yeah. It's, a, it's almost a point in the local court. Um, but in the district court, I think you can make, you can be persuasive. Well, then how long did you practice on your own for? Um, over 10 years, over a decade. And how did you end up as a magistrate? Um, someone spoke to me and said, why don't you apply? And... Um, I said, oh, there's four or five hundred people want that job and, I, you know, it'd be difficult. Uh, I, I was considering going to the bar, but I couldn't afford to have six months out of with no way. So um, I applied and I got, I was given the job. I was appointed first try, so uh, I was pleased. And how long now have you served as a magistrate? Ten years, two weeks ago. And whereabouts have you then sat? All around Sydney, Wollongong. Uh, I've travelled all the way to Eden. I've travelled in all the co- all the courts between Sydney and Eden. I've been to Cooma, um, Quimbian, Goulburn, all around there, Picton, Mossvale. Oh, yeah, I've, I've been to a fair few courts. And just give us some idea of your work as a magistrate. No doubt it involves crime. Yes. What else do you see on a regular basis? Um, mainly crime, um, but there are other orders, apprehended violence orders, that we often deal with. Uh, there is some family law consent orders and that uh, magistrates will deal with and there are some civil matters um, that that we deal with on a regular basis but I think the most important thing to understand about the local court is just how busy the local court is. It's not uncommon for a magistrate, any single magistrate to deal with between two and three hundred matters any given month. That will be a mixture of Defended hearings and list days. List days are where you, you, you'll sentence people or you'll adjourn them or you know, Section 14 and all illness yeah. applications. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to refer to a section, but um, there are uh, mental illness 
sure. applications. So now, uh, when in your time on the bench, I assume you've seen uh, a number of Aboriginal offenders. Yes. Um, in the areas where you have been working as a magistrate, have you seen significant numbers of Aboriginal people in trouble? Um, proportionally, given that Aboriginal people make up, I think we're up to about 3.4% of the population, proportionally, yes. Yeah, in, in It's area-specific, if you go to areas where there are communities, um, you'll get a disproportionate amount of Aboriginal people in your, in the lists uh, in those courts. And obviously you've been called upon to sentence many Aboriginal people for yes. different types of crimes, no doubt. Yes. Uh, can you explain or talk a little bit about your approach to sentencing particularly young Aboriginal people? Firstly, um, the law is really can be quite flexible, particularly in relation to sentence. In that regard, um, the law recognises the emotional immaturity of a young person to perhaps contribute to them committing crimes. The law recognises that and it is I think, a very strong mitigating circumstance. It recognises that uh, young men in particular might not mature until their mid-20s, early 30s for some. The law is flexible. It recognises that young people, um, because of their lack of development, are more likely to commit offences. So what does that mean for a magistrate sentencing a young Aboriginal offender? How how does that influence what you would do? Um, I think it's a subjective circumstance. That means uh, it can be used in a way that um, changes what sentence that you might ordinarily impose if it's someone who was, say, 40 and repeat offender. You can try to... Um, craft a sentence that addresses the issue that's causing the offending. And is there a pattern to the issues that are causing offending in young Aboriginal people? Um, yeah, there'd be a number, Peter. Uh, addiction, substance abuse is a big one. Intergenerational trauma is a very big factor in relation to Aboriginal offending. Um, intergenerational poverty, um, FASD, which is the fetal alcohol syndrome, mm. the um, fact that they have witnessed alcohol, drug abuse, violence, as a very, very young person. And we're talking as young as two, three, four, five, six, and seven. And they see some horrific things happen um, in their own families and, and in communities largely. So um, 
Yes, there's a number of factors that, that impact. Well, underlying that, I think, as you identified, is the intergenerational trauma. Yes. Which I think you are, uh, you, you would tell us all is probably the primary factor that's underpinning the lives of many Aboriginal offenders. Yes, and unless there's early earlier interventions, um, it unfortunately may continue. In terms of trying to um, ensure that children don't have to experience the trauma to the extent that they presently do. Community-based and community-generated interventions, yes. You mean by that Aboriginal community? Yes, yes. yeah, community, yes. Yes. Um, And are you encouraged that that might be happening? I am. It's one of the reasons I'm here. I'm quite hopeful, more hopeful than I was um, 10 years ago when I first became a magistrate. Um, There are some really, I'll, I'll say this, I'm encouraged that many are now working towards finding new methods of trying to... Um, deal with or new strategies to deal with Aboriginal offenders and it's really encouraging Um, it it starts in the children's court Um, it goes through uh, the youth courtly court circle courts of course there's the Willamah court in the district court Um, so yeah all of those things give me hope and what about older Aboriginal offenders Um, what approach do you take when sentencing older people? In terms of their Aboriginality, how do you uh, how do you look at their offending in light of their origin, their, their background? Are you talking about people who have offended over a long period of time and they're, they're still in the system? Or? Yes, well that's, that's yeah. one we should understand, yeah. Yeah, um, some of, I think you have to recognise that some of those people have become institutionalised which is really quite sad. Um, I am have personally dealt with many elderly Aboriginal men who are institutionalised, and that means they feel more comfortable in custody because there's, there's boundaries. They're fed. They have a bed. They're not homeless. Um, as sad as that is, it's something that um, I have witnessed. Very difficult to deal with if they've committed very serious crime, particularly repeat domestic violence. Yeah. Which no doubt you see from time to time. Yes, right across the board. Um, I see a lot of domestic violence and um, the High Court has recognised that domestic violence is a very difficult area to deal with uh, in relation to First Nations people. The case of Munda, um, it's a Western Australian originally. Uh, it it recognises that sending people to an institution such as a prison may not uh, generate the change that people expect. They recognise this as a very violent environment. So you're sending someone perhaps for the first time, into a really violent, competitive, misogynist environment.
expecting them to come out um, uh, and not commit further offences. Yeah. Your own journey through life, have you been able to put your finger on how it was that you were able to change your direction and pursue a career in the law, given the family circumstances from which you came? Um, yeah, I, I think about it now. I, I hadn't in the past. I think um, there was always... I always wanted things to change. And I'd imagine that's common amongst many who live in a house where there's domestic violence and mental illness and trauma. Um, I always have a memory of wanting things to change and I would be quite creative and I'd make up these... This is very... I'm talking as early as I can remember. Only six or seven years old. Yeah, I wanted things to change. Mm. So I'd... I think I generated a really good uh, uh, imagination uh, based on that because I'd try and think of better things and I'd make up games and I'd play games always by myself just up the backyard. Um, I, I, look, I was very well fed. Um, I was loved. Um, and I think just that desire to change and the opportunity to change was given to me when I was able to go to other groups of people and, and basically become someone else. I travel. What do you mean by that? Go to other groups of people? What sort of age are you talking um, about? 12, 13, 14. I was able to jump on trains and go to Cronulla. Right. From the western suburbs. Yeah. And I, I, I wasn't the best surfer, but I, I really liked it. And I made new groups of friends out there and they didn't know me. They didn't know I was from that house with the broken fence and the long grass and the broken windows. Um, so, yeah, that was that was good. I was able to hang with different people. So when the people I was associating with started seriously uh, or started to um, use drugs, particularly heroin, not so much cannabis, but heroin in particular, and trips, acid, um, I was able to sort of skulk away and be with others. Um, so just having that other, that out. So you're talking about your Aboriginal friends studying down uh, the addictive path? Or? No, no, just any, just a group of friends. Group that you had. Yeah, yeah just a group of misfits. And the surface, the surface didn't have that problem in the same way? Well, you wanted to surf. Yeah. So... Uh, being off your face on acid is not conducive to you catching, uh, away. catching a wave. No. You might think you're catching a wave, Peter, but uh, you're not. Yeah. You're more likely drowned. So, um, yeah, so just having uh, other other options. Now, I understand you still regularly surf, is that right? Yeah, I'm back in the water now. Yeah, yeah. I, I swim every day. And now, you mentioned one of the developments um, in the court's approach to sentencing Aboriginal people has been circle sentencing. Yes. Can you just help us to understand your perspective on circle sentencing? I was at the first circle court. When was that? Uh, 2002. 
generally, my view, culturally specific processes are particularly effective, particularly in the criminal jurisdiction and particularly on younger Aboriginals who live within communities that are pretty tight-knit. Um, I think it can have a really big impact on them as a, as a process. And why is that? What, what do you see is happening in that process? Um, the offender hears from other First Nations people that say, we don't condone your criminal behaviour. So if the young person is not part of the community generally, um, they start to realise that other First Nations people just don't um, agree with with what they're doing. Um, the offender has to confront the offending and its impact on a more rigorous basis. Uh, so I've already explained to local court the number of matters we deal with uh, and uh, a circle court may take an hour or two hours where if they were sentenced in the local court it might take five minutes. Right. And they usually, depending on the wishes of the victim, they usually speak to the victim or the victim's family will come and say, listen, this is the impact of, mm. of what you're doing and what about the kids? This happened in front of the kids. And, um, and two, offenders are more likely to reject a judicial process that's top-down. You go to a circle court and everyone's on the same level. Um, there's no mahogany inside. Um, it's the case that we all sit down. Magistrates generally don't, they won't wear robes or anything. Yeah. Uh, and the, the circles that have I, I've been to, the community runner, magistrate says not much. And are magistrates favourably disposed to circle sentencing? Do they think it's good? Uh, I think a majority do, yes. Mm. Yeah, there might be some that that hold the view that, uh, well, the reason Aboriginal incarceration rates are so high is because they just keep committing crime. Uh, I think that it was... That's a fairly simple proposition. Yes. <laughs> yeah, one trotted out, uh, uh, though, uh, on occasions. Mm. Um, it ignores the colonisation of Australia the decimation of Aboriginal culture and decimation of Aboriginal law, L-O-R-E, um, and the disrespect, I think, that many Aboriginal people feel for um, some of the agencies that they encounter in the um, court system. Of course, magistrates would be seeing these sorts of problems day in and day out, I guess, depending upon where their sitting. Yes. But as, as your own story makes plain, a great many Aboriginal people um, don't go down the troubled path but uh, um, achieve an education and uh, build a career that makes a positive contribution to the whole community. Oh, yes. Now, you indicated that it's a pretty time-consuming process compared with the conventional sentencing process in the magistrate's court. Yes. 
Um, and that's obviously creates resource issues in terms yes. of having magistrates and courtrooms available. Yes. Do you see any modifications to the circle process that could help? Firstly, I'll, I'll, I'll just take a step to the side and I'll, I'll just say that I don't see it as an alternate. I think it should be referred to as a specialist court, like other specialist jurisdictions. Um, it is a process that is managed by legislation, and I won't bore your listeners with the details of the sections, but if they're budding law students, they can find out and look that up. Research is the key. Um, so it is a, a, a process that I think benefits from the time. So I wouldn't really like to see it shortened. So to a- answer your question, I I think the longer process is is important. It very very important. Mm-hmm. I'm, I always like to say um, I'm a crockpot, not a microwave, and I think that process should be a crock pot, not a microwave. Right. Because <laughs> the local court is like a microwave. Yeah, uh, it's a very good way of putting it. So the yeah. court is, uh, yeah, you, you crock pot it. And uh, um, sometimes the, the offenders left to stew with what the community thinks of what they've done. And finally, um, can we just talk a little bit about your experience and therefore your perspective going forward. Obviously your life's journey and your professional work have given you an acute understanding of the problems facing Aboriginal people in our community and particularly their interface with the justice system. Do you have any thoughts about how we might contribute to positive change amongst Aboriginal communities? I I think early earlier interventions. So you have communities that are still impacted by the incarceration of mum, dad, um, aunties, uncles. That incarceration leads to unemployment, poverty within the community. It leads to other government agencies coming into the communities uh, and perhaps... Uh, looking at uh, removing children and others. So it just seems to be on repeat. And um, I'd like to think that um, the court process can be used to change. I think sometimes by the time people have got to the court system... I won't say it's too late because that's giving up, but it'd be nice if they don't get to us in the first place and there's interventions in relation to to parenting and nutrition and um, just just life skills. You see those interventions as coming from within the community or coming from outside? Well, they have to be, have to be founded on community import, yeah. um, but I'd imagine there's resources and things that uh, need to be foundational. I mean, it's if you think that, and I'll use a figure that I, I'm not 100% sure on, but if we say that 
it costs sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year for someone to be incarcerated, and you look at someone who's institutionalised, and they may spend ten or twenty years in jail. You start looking at the figures and say, well, wouldn't it have been better to to spend and some money up front, front end, rather than rather than back end? Yeah, I understand. And, and some of the um, HMRU, and I'm told that the cost is eighty, ninety thousand dollars a year. Now, don't don't quote me; they're very, very high figures, yeah. um, and that money would be better spent early intervention. Peter, that's that's my view. Mark, uh, I think you're the only Aboriginal magistrate in New South Wales at the moment. That's my understanding. I'm the only one that identifies. I suspect there's one or two that may have. Uh, links, but uh, they don't identify. Don't identify. Yeah. And are Aboriginal people employed in the court system to any extent? Yes, that's one pleasing aspect. More and more you walk into a court and you bump into someone from within the, the local Aboriginal community, which is good. Um, the AMSs, uh, that's the Aboriginal Medical Services, two great areas for Aboriginal employment, which is also pleasing. There's lots of really positive stories out there, but I, I just don't see them being um, reflected in the media, uh, which is which is disappointing. But I, I think things are changing. And you, when you say things are changing, that's not only the court community, but you say generally for Aboriginal people? Uh, yes. On one level, yes, but I know the uh, incarceration numbers have gone up 2% for men, 1% for women, um, and the gap, uh, closing the gap, is, is, is struggling. Um, yeah. All of those things are true, but the sense that you've given us today, I think, is one of positive change, uh, or the opportunity for positive change to occur in Aboriginal communities. Yeah, I'm... I'm that's why I'm here. I'm, I'm hopeful. I've seen a lot of change, particularly in the law. Now, Mark, uh, what, where do you see those changes occurring? Are they occurring in the, the leaders of the jurisdictions? Yeah, right, right across the board, um, uh, Judge Johnson in the local court, um, Judge Skinner in uh, the children's court, and even State Coroner um, O'Sullivan, they are all changing process to be more community-minded. Um, it's really quite pleasing. There's some some really exciting things happening. Um, children's Court with the Ithkori Court, the Coroner's Court are really uh, trying to break down all the barriers with not, not just offenders, and that's pleasing as well. Um, it's not... Everyone's looking at how... First Nations people interact with the court system. So as victims, um, in the coroner's court, of course, there's the inquests and various things. So there's lots of positive things happening, um, and it's starting at the top, which is uh, good. Uh, Judge Henson started it in 2002, allowing that first um, court to, to circle court. But now it seems like they've finally got 
the message that there should be more funding and they've provided some funding. So it's all, all positive. You've been talking about the developments that have been happening within the justice section in relation to Aboriginal people. I think there's a special group that's been formed of uh, magistrates to look at these issues. Can you tell us a little about that? Yes. Um, there is a First Nations committee which started last year. It's, there's 14 magistrates and we have a w wide brief. Um, there's, it's a broad assessment of First Nations people's interaction with courts. That's the local court, the children's court and the coroner's court and all the heads of jurisdiction that I've uh, referred to are uh, uh, positive in relation to the committee's recommendations generally. We've had a look at a number of things and in a short period of time we've recommended uh, amendments to our bail precedent form. We've recommended amendments to warrants when people are sent to custody. Uh, that turns on the findings of a uh, death in custody and an inquest in Victoria where um, one member's interested in having plaques on each court with the traditional land uh, being recognised, um, being placed at each court. There's others trying to, to argue for federal funding. Oh, only, oh, well, there's others who would try and uh, are trying to have others uh, look at perhaps federal funding for uh, Aboriginal medical centres with rehabilitation units. So I'm um, covering a broad area, coroner's court, children's court. Uh, it's a really proactive and a really, um, I think, uh, a good committee. Well, that's a great note to end this discussion on. Thank you very much for joining us today we wish you well in your future work in the local court. Thank you. You have been listening to Magistrate Douglas, who's talked to us about his own personal journey in life, but also particularly about the interface between the Aboriginal offenders and the court system. This podcast, Sentencing Explained, is brought to you by the New South Wales Sentencing Council. The teacher's guide to the podcast and further information about the council is available on the Sentencing Council's website. I'm Peter McClellan. Thank you for listening. Listener.